Hello again, and welcome to this week's Knowing God with Heart and Mind, that virtual Bible study, that virtual church classroom that is led by yours truly, Pastor Dan, each week as we study God's Word together and as we have been doing for several weeks now, studying the doctrines of the church. We're using a course by J. Ellsworth Callis, produced by Cokesbury Publishing, uh, to help us called Christian Believer. It is an incomplete version that we're participating in, but it is at least a way for us to grasp the topics that uh, roughly follow the pattern of the Nicene Creed. So it's good to have you here again this week. We are excited as we consider the topic of the body of Christ in the world and this is sort of a continuation of last week's topic because we move from God's called out people to this particular called out people we call the church. And so we're going to talk a little bit about that and uh, see if we can come to a clearer understanding of the nature of the church, even with all of its warts and pimples. For now, let's uh, check in with the local things. Well, the fire's burning in the fireplace, as you can hear, and once again, we are experiencing the cold weather that goes with this time of the year. We are here in southwest Indiana in Jasper, and the Nine Oaks have pretty much given up all their leaves. The winds have been blowing hard, sometimes from the north and sometimes from the south, and uh, the winds have brought us cold chills in the day and in the night, but... Uh, Nothing like what I saw a few days ago when I was visiting my son and his wife in South Bend. Uh, up in South Bend on the northern end of the state where the lake effect snows are common, the snow just kept coming and coming and coming. It was really something to see. And the further we came to the south on our way home, the less snow we saw until finally when we arrived back here in Jasper, we found that there had been a slight dusting of snow and it had long since melted off by the time we arrived. So this is weather in the Midwest. The further north you go, the closer to the lakes you go, the more precipitation you get. The rest of the time, well, it's sort of a crapshoot, and it literally is whatever Canada and uh, Alaska choose to throw our way, don't you know? When you look at the map, when the weatherman is talking, or the weather person, I should say, uh, you see those dips of cold air coming down from the north, and our weather is radically affected by those. And uh, so that's our story here in southwest Indiana. There's uh, not much going on around here that uh, isn't kind of expected everywhere. People are getting ready for the Christmas holiday. The Christmas lights are going up all over the place, and uh, the communities are are uh, having celebrations of one sort or another. The church services are happening, and even as I speak, we are planning all of the activities at Shiloh United Methodist Church in Jasper and anticipating a great time of family and uh, fellowship with all of the believers who come to recall the birth of Christ. At Shiloh, we're particularly interested in the advent of Christ in that we are talking simultaneously about remembering his first coming, even while we anticipate his second coming. And so we've had a great time discussing the nature of Advent as a uh, instrument that was created by the church. That is, the uh, 
traditional church that we are going to talk about today. There are a lot of things that we practice at Shiloh United Methodist that come to us from the very ancient traditions of the old church that uh, will be mentioned in our discussion later, and yet there are lots of new traditions that come from a contemporary body of believers moving in a constantly new direction. So it's pretty remarkable when you think about it. But uh, that's, uh, that's the story here under the Nine Oaks this week, and I hope wherever you are, you're being blessed, and I hope that with all the good news, there is enough to give you joy, and where there is sad news, that there is enough joy to, uh, to sort of hold the bottom of the bucket for you so that you don't become too discouraged. So uh, just remember, there's always joy, even in our memories. Let's pray. Dear God, thank you for this gathering of people. They are with us, you and me, wherever they find themselves listening to this podcast. They have come because they're eager to know you better with their hearts and minds. They have come to know your heart and mind. I have been humbled to be your servant in this role, and I ask that you make my words worthy of your name. I pray as I share these learnings and share this information with my friends and brothers and sisters out there that you will enhance it by your Holy Spirit so that it becomes more than the sum of its parts, so that it becomes for them the true spirit of your mind and heart. I pray this for them, along with the prayers for their health and well-being, for those loved ones of theirs, for all of their unnamed circle of things they bring to this class and this time. We love you, Lord. Amen. So, the body of Christ, that's our topic for today. It is the church we're talking about, and it is a topic that begins pretty much where we left off last week, because if we left off last week talking about how God has always called out certain people at certain times for certain purposes, and that God has delighted in calling out people who are unlikely, but therefore all the more probable to make this a clear sign of God's providence and God's glory. And uh, so we kind of understand being called out by God is sort of an indication by God that we are probably not capable of doing the thing God wants us to do apart from God's help. And uh, so what we know about being called out by God is is that uh, God doesn't call you because you're good at something. He doesn't say, well, since you're so good at uh, at finance, I'm going to make you a banker. He, he doesn't necessarily do that. What God may call you to do is some sort of activity that uses your talents, but asks you to trust him for gifts that you do not have. Whatever God does, it's always going to be in a way that demonstrates God's superior uh, nature, and uh, not in a vain way, but simply as a means of explaining and revealing God's self to a disbelieving world. And this 
revelation hopefully will lead to a faith relationship that becomes personal and intimate and ultimately leads to eternal life in the family of God through Jesus Christ. So that's kind of the called out part of it. But then what happens when a bunch of us are feeling called by God and feeling as though we've been born again, our lives have been changed by God's good news through Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit, then what do we do? Um, Do we all run around and do our own thing, or do we, as creatures created for community by God, find each other and begin to celebrate this common love for God, this common new life in God's grace? this commonly held Holy Spirit or, or received Holy Spirit, you know, does that pull us together and make us a community? Well, typically it does, doesn't it? And so this week's topic, Lesson 21, is really about how we became the church. And this is a twofold thing, as you heard last week, because the church is both Catholic in its small c sense, because it's universal, and uh, it is also a church of denominations and different family cultures for within doctrinal standards. So, we have a lot to sort out here. Um, first of all, let's talk about your scripture readings for this past week. When you read Psalm 122, the uh, author gave us a picture of the house of the Lord, and there was a sense that People have always been called to a particular place to worship God in a particular setting that is designed to be a place of worship. Now, in the Old Testament, it was a place where sacrifices always occurred. And so, in a sense, the tabernacle and then the temple were houses of the Lord and places of worship because we believe, first of all, that God dwelt in them, that literally the tabernacle contained uh, God. Now, the Bible and many of its adherents believe that you know God was physically present in the tabernacle and uh, and in the tent of meeting and so forth. Well, I think that's fine. I do believe that too. But I wonder if it isn't more of a dimensional thing, wherein we see God offering a portal in those locations. And in other words, God agrees to to open a window between our reality and God's reality. And it is in that space where they encounter God in the tabernacle, in the tent of meeting. Um, It is perhaps this sort of portal that was, in fact, the star over Bethlehem, the star over Jesus. It was, in fact, this sort of portal through which the shepherds viewed the angels on the eve of child of Christ's child's birth. Just to give you an idea where I'm going with that. So, when we talk about the house of God, what we really mean in the Old Testament sense, what the psalmist would have meant, is literally the place where God was met and uh, a place where God was to be seen and heard, at least by those who were selected for that holy task. This place came to be found exclusively then, on Mount Zion in Jerusalem, the place where the temple was. And uh, even, I'm sure, in times of apostasy, that is, a falling away from God, there was still a belief that at least the house had the capacity to to uh, contain God or to at least encounter God within it. 
And uh, so the building became as sacred as the one who could be met there. And uh, so, in a way, these buildings and things become almost as highly revered and almost worshipped more than the one to whom they're dedicated. And uh, in Matthew, we see how the church is a sort of expression of the idea that the wheat and the weeds are being separated there, and it is in the threshing floor, so to speak, of God. And, uh, and also we see in, in the, the same gospel how this is a place where God uh, exercises discipline and uh, organizes the people for God's purposes. We read in 1 Corinthians in chapter 12 that the church is meant to be one body with many members uh, chosen by God. So here's that calling out again, but, but called to be a unified whole even while it is divided into different parts. And uh, the Apostle Paul beautifully states that we can be one body, but some of us do the work of a toe, and others do the work of a finger, and others do the work of lungs. And, you know, the body is complex and has its many uh, parts and many functions. And so he wants us to understand that in the same way the church is a body with many parts and many functions. And so when he writes to the church in Ephesus and the church in Colossae, he goes on to say that, you know, this is a body and Christ is the head. And uh, even in those days when they may not have had the scientific and medical knowledge we have, everybody understood that most everything that our bodies did was directed by the activity of our brain and our head. And so it was not an... Uh, inconceivable that Paul would refer to Jesus as the head or the mind that directs the body of Christ, this church. And uh, then he tells Timothy, his young pastor protege, that the church is a kind of household in, uh, in its own right, in that it's like a family, that that we should think of the people of God as a family, and people hold different roles within families, and there's different levels of maturity within families. And, and uh, Peter goes on to say that even the, uh, the priesthood of believers could be uh, uh, an, an accepted sort of view of, of the body of Christ in that the people of God are God's representatives. They're God's uh, instruments on earth. You know, the, the concept of priesthood is, in effect, uh, if you take it away from any denomination and just think of the term itself, priesthood is a term that refers to a uh, being an instrument of God, that, that through you as a priest, God does certain things, and through you, uh, God hears certain things. And, do, you know, so it's sort of a, <clears throat> the priest serves as a conduit, as a kind of, uh, of uh, uh, communicative device, uh, sort of a... Uh, instrument of God's grace and uh, an instrument through which God's grace is expressed. So, there's a certain sense that there are those who are set apart, like pastors and priests, for particular priestly roles, but there are also, in Peter's mind, is a priesthood that all believers have. And I think that could be understood as the work of the Holy Spirit that is one Holy Spirit for all believers who, in any given moment, takes uh, the lead in a submissive Christian, uh, so that 
God's will can be done through them, and that's a kind of priesthood of the believer. And uh, then there is, in the later parts of the Bible readings, in particular in Revelation, there is the term church. The church word doesn't really appear very much in Scripture at all, but when it does appear, it is an extension of a word that uh, comes from the Greek, the ekklesia, and uh, ecclesiastical, words like that come from it. Ekklesia meaning the body of believers. And so, you might remember I told you last week the word synagogue, you know, uh, means the, the gathering, and the word ekklesia means the gathering of the people. And, and so, there is, in a sense, the word church is a description of an organized religion. And yet, it is also a description of a uh, sort of larger concept. Now, the church is, first of all, of God. That's one of the primary things that we want to understand as we go into this, that, that it starts with the Old Testament idea of God calling out a certain group of people for a particular purpose in a particular time. But then we understand that it is God who creates the church, that God is the one who creates this body. And by that we mean that Jesus, God in the flesh, invited people to follow him, and those who did came at his invitation. And uh, later on, when the Holy Spirit came, it was God who acted. It was God who sent the Holy Spirit, and he sent it upon those people who were to be the church. And so, we understand that, that church is a God-instituted thing. We understand that when God organized the people, he may not have applied a certain set of human rules, but God did give the power of the Holy Spirit and the, uh, the, the human family of God a central figure in Jesus and a central set of teachings that came from the apostles from Jesus and uh, from the Holy Spirit. And so, even though God didn't set up the same kind of rules as he did, say, for Moses, nevertheless, the church is a product of God's uh, activity and God's direction, and it's God's organization that causes things to happen. As you listen to the apostles talk in the Bible about the gatherings of people who are believers and how they started meeting in certain places at certain times and how they organized themselves to take care of the poor and to share their property and things, you can see how they made certain decisions also, always prayerfully and also with the direction of the Holy Spirit so that there became a sort of ordering and structuring of their organized Christian activity. And so, this church is of God, and yet it begins to take on a human nature. And uh, in the same way that we become children of God because we don't appear different to the people who look at us. Our bodies haven't really changed because we became Christians and we received the Holy Spirit. And yet we know there's something different inside, that our nature has changed and our whole outlook on life has changed. And we believe that our spirits have become alive and are growing into this increasingly more sanctified, holy, and set-apart spiritual being that is being prepared for the presence of God when God comes 
or when we go to be with God. And so, the church is kind of the same. It's both human and divine. It is something that is divinely gifted and is divinely inspired and motivated and divinely shaped and formed, but it is also functioning through human beings. And so we can easily see how the church is both divine and human and that in its humanity, it is flawed. And, uh, you know, there's a saying I've used for years that describes some of the people that we will occasionally deal with in our lives who will occasionally uh, affect our lives in one way or another, and that is radically gifted and radically flawed. The people who are the church are radically gifted with the Spirit of God, radically gifted with the divine leadership that forms the body of Christ, and yet radically flawed because they're human. And in their humanity, the people of the church organize around their shared human values as much as they do their spiritual values. And so, as time passes and the apostles begin to die off, the church begins to become all the more human as the vision expands beyond the world of Jerusalem and uh, Judea. And so, what we see is, is a church that grows into different cultures, the message of Christ, the gospel good news, the work of the Holy Spirit, and the newborn believer is possible in all sorts of social settings and in all sorts of cultures. But as it moves from culture to culture, it begins to take on the flavor of those flawed people who are in those cultures. And so, this evolution sort of happens where the church continues to be of God, and it continues to be centered on the work of Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit, and the hope of redemption, the hope of death uh, that leads to life, and the hope of the resurrection and the return of Christ. You know, all of these things remain the same, but the context changes, And so, as people of the 21st century, we look back over the last couple thousand years and we realize that the church has changed in its appearance and in the words and in the ways many, 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 many times. And it has divided into different sects and to different uh, different denominations and to different functions and even different theological ideologies. In other words, there are people whose image of God is shaped by their culture or their particular circumstances, and their image of God is still essentially the same as yours and mine, but it's different because they need God in a different way than you need God. And and, uh, so, while God is unchanging, their perception of God changes. Uh, to put that in perspective, you're listening to your friend Pastor Dan, and if my child happens to be listening, they're listening to their dad. And if my mother happens to be listening, she's listening to her son. And uh, while I'm still just one person, you all will hear me in a different context. My mother will hear this, and uh, she will hear her son, and she'll hear it with a certain pride that mothers have in their sons. She'll hear it with a certain appreciation for the knowledge and so forth, but always affected by her awareness of me as the one she bore and raised and uh, delivered into adulthood and now watches with fascination as I become the father of her grandchildren, 
the pastor of a church, the husband to her daughter-in-law, and the person that God has shaped me into as an adult. And so there's this unique image of me that only my mother could have. And in the same way, my children would hear this, and they would hear it through their unique understanding of me as my children. And my wife would hear this from her unique understanding of me as my wife. And yet you hear me as Pastor Dan. Maybe someone you know because you talk to me at church or listen to me from the pulpit on Sunday morning, or maybe someone you don't know because all you have is this. And so, all one guy, but being received in a variety of ways. And so, in the same way, church is experienced contextually. The understanding of God is experienced contextually. It's understood uh, that the church is in a relationship with God formed by Jesus Christ and the work of the Holy Spirit, and yet it has everything to do with the people you are wherever you are. And so you look for the things we have in common, and you try not to get too wrapped up in the ways that we're different, because so many of the ways we're different are cultural. But then there comes a new and more uh, serious Issue And this is the issue of doctrine. Now, the word doctrine, you might recall, could be best understood as boundaries. Um, it's like the boundaries around a football field. You know, it, it's, it's okay to play the game as long as you stay inside those lines. Once you go outside of those lines, you foul, you know, and uh, gameplay stops and something has to change, you know. Um, we have to go back to the center and start again, that kind of thing. And uh, so doctrine is one of those things that was born out of the churches organizing and becoming groups of people with an affinity. They are all people who have this one common good news and this one common grace and Holy Spirit. But as they begin to fulfill the things that God seems to be directing them to do, they organize themselves for that purpose, and they generally affiliate with people who have their same uh, sort of cultural expectations. So it shouldn't surprise us that there are multiple denominations. It shouldn't surprise us that Hispanic people prefer to worship with other Hispanic people, but then if you get to know them, you find out that they would prefer to worship within people, within cultures that they have an affinity. So, in other words, just because uh, there are people who speak the same language, there are people of different nations and different cultures within that language, and so the same is true of us. And on and on it goes. And this is why some of us who are from the South will expect certain things to happen at church, while people from the North would never expect those things. And, and uh, the, the real defining issue is doctrine. In other words, there are certain ground rules that we all agree to, and this is where denominations seem to form. Because there will be differences in doctrine that can't be resolved, where, for example, the doctrine of Holy Communion comes in, there will be those who see it as a memorial act that has no particular spiritual value, that is not significant in any uh, super, uh, supernatural way. Uh, and there will be those who think of it as a highly significant spiritual activity so that they are convinced that when they engage in Holy Communion, they are in fact experiencing the very flesh and blood of Jesus, even though it is still in its form and appearance, bread and wine. 
Then there will be those with a similar but less significant view. And then there will be those who just don't believe it at all. And they don't believe in sacraments like, uh, uh, like the Salvation Army, for example, um, or the Quakers. And so these are doctrinal areas that will create contention among believers. And unfortunately, these contentions can become more significant than they probably should be. And, uh, you know, the question that they lead us to is, is whether or not we can experience God's heart and mind with other believers if they are committed to a belief that we are not committed to. And uh, that, again, I believe is why God has been so gracious in allowing the many kinds of denominations and the many ways in which people can gather in God's name. And God's still there. And uh, it will be fascinating come uh, Resurrection Day for us to gather in God's presence and to find out just how important it was to God whether one doctrine was upheld or another. I, I question whether God would even be of particular concern about that. But then that leads to the doctrine of salvation, for example. Now, one or two forms of the salvation doctrine could be completely wrong. In which case, we may find out that someone's not there because they accepted a doctrinal standard of salvation that turned out to be untrue. So, doctrine is something that should be taken very seriously, but not too seriously. And in the same way, doctrine that reflects biblical truth informed by the Holy Spirit is probably the kind that needs to be taken most seriously, while doctrine that is formed by the opinions of a particular culture and the tastes of a particular group of people with an affinity, eh, maybe it shouldn't be called doctrine. There's a word for what that is, and it's called dogma, which is essentially the tradition of the church. There are a lot of dogmatic people in church. There are a lot of people who, because they believe as their parents taught them, because they believe as their close group of friends believe, they assume that the church is okay as long as it's in alignment with those beliefs. And uh, this is where we go back to point A, which was the churches of God, and therefore God is the author and director and Lord of the church. And God is not interested in what we think God should approve or disprove. Rather, God is interested in our submission to God's authority over all of our lives and over our particular life. And that means that we are subjected to his authority. This is why we call him Lord. So the question then to ask yourself as you think about your place in the church is, would I consider myself part of the church universal? Would I say with honest integrity that I feel affiliated with and joined with people who claim Christ as their Savior, who are born again in the Holy Spirit and anticipate Christ's return? Would I believe that they are my brothers and sisters if they also spoke different languages, worshiped in different settings, and didn't have the exact same doctrinal standards as me. That would be to join yourself with something that, uh, that Augustine would have called the church invisible. And then there's the church visible. 
And this is what people, especially who are not believers or followers of Jesus Christ, see. They see our buildings. They see our ministries and our actions and our words. Uh, They see the stuff that claims the name of Jesus Christ and the people who claim the name of Jesus Christ. And they ask the question, is that what Christians are? You know, I don't wear one of those fish symbols on my car. I don't put any kind of license plate on my car that says, look at me, I'm a Christian or I'm a pastor. And it's really quite simple. Because even when I'm driving in the best way that I know how, I'm probably doing something that irritates another driver. Because when we're in our cars, we barely get along even while we're all trying to obey the same general set of rules. And the last thing I want to do is announce that I'm a Christian and have someone judge my Christianity by the way I drive. Think about that for a moment. We, on the other hand, have a responsibility to be Christians, living in a set-apart sort of way, separate from the world while we're still in it. And so in our workplace, you would hope that people know you're a Christian But they would also understand that even Christians occasionally have moments when their flesh is weak and their spirit is willing. Then there are institutions that we call churches, the buildings. And what do our buildings say about our relationship with God? What do the buildings tell people about our relationship with God? When they look at our building, do they see self-important uh, self-significant and uh, influential members of the community, or do they see people who love God and want to honor God with the resources that God has given them? And, uh, you know, the funny thing is, is we're right back to the complaint uh, against the temple. It didn't really matter at one point when God didn't show up anymore at the temple The temple had already gone from being a place to worship God to a place of worship. And so, as with many of our churches and our institutions, the temple became something that was admired and revered and worshipped in and of itself. And whether or not God showed up, it didn't matter. That's a lot the case in our churches now. There are beautiful church buildings in our communities that are very old and beautiful. There are modern church buildings that are very new and flashy and functional. And each one says something on the surface about our relationship with God, or at least the perception of our relationship with God. But do people see God dwelling within? How will they know that the church is the people of God gathered as the body of Christ when they encounter us and our buildings and grounds? This is the question that shapes the whole way that I choose to do ministry as a pastor. My desire is that our building would be a place that screams, God is here. God cares about you. God is interested in your life and your eternal future, your eternal destiny. Our building needs to scream that, and the only way that it can scream that is if people can come there to receive the things of God, 
the grace for sinners, the love for the sick and the suffering, uh, food and, and benefit to the orphan and the widow. And in every way, our church needs to be a vision of God's love that is expressed through the priesthood of believers. And that way, people see the light of God dwelling in the building and in the people of the building. That's where the difference is. That would be the church visible on earth. And now, when we get ready to wrap up here, I wonder if you're thinking about your church right now or whether or not you even go to church. I'm aware that every week I tell you that I want you to use this as only one part of your work re working relationship with God. I'm aware that I tell you every week not to use this exclusively as your interaction with God, but to be a part of a body of believers. I'm aware that I tell you quite frequently that you will encounter believers who are, well, you know, the best examples of Christians. And then you will encounter churches that don't seem to be very committed to Christ at all. And and I've even discussed that in this, this uh, last few minutes, that there are places like the temple at times where people are more enamored with the building and the things they do there than they are with the God to whom it is dedicated. And so, my word to you is, is, yes, you will encounter those kinds of Christians and you will encounter those kinds of churches. And if you do, you may want to choose to worship somewhere else. You may want to align yourself with someone else. Don't be too quick to judge. After all, they're human. You may come to my church knowing that I preach this way and teach this way and happen to have a day when I'm not particularly with it. A day when I perhaps haven't slept very well, or I have a really bad headache, or I've just gotten chewed out by an angry person, or who knows what, and you happen to experience me at a less than stellar example of Christianity, and you might say, well, heck, then that's not the kind of church I want to be a part of, and what a hypocrite. He told me on the radio that he was the kind of guy that I'd want to go with. My point is, is that you must be willing to be wise and prudent and patient as you seek the church family that you should affiliate with. But don't give up on the church. It is an institution of God. It is an invisible institution that is more than it appears to be. And it is human and visible as well. But there are, as I say, churches where you would probably be better off letting go and moving on to something else. And when you encounter them, it won't take you long to figure that out. But don't act too swiftly. God may be calling you to a particular mission there, and it must be given and received with humility so that we understand that if God calls us to a mission there, it's not our mission as we've defined it, but rather God's mission and as God defines it. And uh, from my experience, when that happens, it'll be hard. And that means that you'll have to depend on God, and then you're like Gideon, least in your tribe, your tribe least among the people, and yet used of God to accomplish the impossible. I want to thank you for listening today and for being a part of this podcast once again. It is a privilege, as always, to be with you in this journey, and I hope that you have been blessed. We will be back again next week with lesson number 22, lesson 22, which is Signs of Sacred Things, and it is a discussion of the sacraments. 
And uh, so we'll be back for Lesson 22 at that point, and uh, should be a really fascinating discussion. But uh, for now, I'd like to uh, remind you to uh, visit us at shilohum.org and uh, consider uh, helping with this ministry through your love of gifts of financial help or to be present as a part of that body of believers. If you're not in this vicinity, then as I've said, I hope you will find a place to be. And uh, I ask you every week to contact me and let me know that you're being blessed by this. And I look forward to hearing from you each week. Please make the effort to let me know how this serves you. And uh, if you decide you need to correct me or criticize me, be kind. But feel free. I can take it. I'm a big boy. But for now, I just want to close with this prayer from Walter Rauschenbusch, who was a scholar and theologian who lived from 1861 to 1918. This is his prayer, and this is our prayer to conclude today's lesson. Oh God, we pray for the church, which is set today amid the perplexities of a changing order and face-to-face with new tasks. Baptize her afresh in the life-giving spirit of Jesus. Bestow upon her a great responsiveness to duty, a swifter compassion with suffering, and an utter loyalty to the will of God. Put upon her lips the ancient gospel of her Lord. Fill her with the prophet's scorn of tyranny and with a Christ-like tenderness for the heavy-laden and downtrodden. Bid her cease from seeking her own life, lest she lose it. Make her valiant to give up her life to humanity, that, like her crucified Lord, she may mount by the path of the cross to a higher glory. Through the name of Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. God bless you. Go in peace now to love and serve our Lord.